and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne writers, Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hello, and of course, we've got producer Annabelle Lee sitting to my right. Hello. Hi, Hi. Annabelle. Coming up on today's show, Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Finesse's marriage is over and the world or mostly our mothers are mourning. (laughs) Russell Brand says the mainstream media is out to get him after he was accused of multiple sexual assaults. And who and what is a tube girl? Plus, no, Paul Meskell is not Daisy Edgar Jones' new boyfriend. Drew Barrymore faces (laughs) backlash for returning to work. And are the men okay? Why are they thinking so much about the Roman Empire? (laughs) But first... Zaz McDonald, what Hi. have you got for us? What have I, just generally, <laughs> I don't have anything for you right now. I mean, I've been reading a lot this yes. week, if that's of use to you. I actually listened to an audiobook this week called Glossy. Have you heard about Glossy? Only because you've told me about uh, it off mic. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those who aren't aware, there's this new book out based on the rise of Glossier and the mm. founder, Emily Weiss. It's written by the journalist Marissa Meltzer. And I was really excited to read this book and I'm talking about it now, not as a recommendation per se, because I don't know how much I recommend this book, but because I need to talk about it. Yeah. Did you read the physical copy or listen to the audio No, I listened to the audio book and I found the concept really interesting. I mean, I don't know how much you guys know about Glossier, but it's just such a cult brand that I understand why there's such a market for a book about the brand. I know that Emily Weiss had Glossy the blog. Before she into then, the gloss? Yeah, Into the Gloss, sorry. Before she then had the makeup brand. The makeup brand has recently had a bit of a rocky patch. Yeah, I think the conversations around Glossier recently have been like, are they in their flop era? Like they were so big in the late sort of between maybe 2016 to 2019. People are like, what's the future of Glossier? But it's sort of one of those things where it's like the brand's just suddenly not as cool as it once okay. was. It's probably not doing as well as it once was, but it's still doing okay. I guess I was really fascinated about this book because I can't work out if I felt like it was too personal about Emily Weiss mm. and that we, I think Marissa Meltzer wrote a lot about the fact that there aren't any books about female founders around and that's why she really wanted to write a book about a female founder. But I felt like this is not the book about a female founder that I wanted because so much of it was about Emily Weiss's personality and things like that and not as much about the business. Emily Weiss is pretty young as well. Yeah. It, it almost feels like doing a biography on her might be a bit premature. I definitely felt like it was premature. Part of me was like, can we let Glossier sort of sit, work out how it responds to this patch of being quote unquote in its flop era, which is a phrase <laughs> I hate, but I don't know how else to phrase it and see what comes of it. I don't know. I think when you have so few books of female founders, I think I want the ones written to be perfect. Yeah. And I know that's a really high expectation. No, 100%. But also you want the story to be concluded in some way. And this feels like a founder's a founder who's in her like third chapter well, of 10. Also, there's not that much here. There's not that much going on. Of course, Glossier has had some really credible allegations leveled at it from their retail employees about maybe not being protected as retail employees, particularly when it comes to racism. So that is definitely a worthy story. I feel so conflicted about this book and I really Mm. am hoping some of our listeners have read it because I want to know what they think. I'm going to tell you one more thing before I move on and give you my actual recommendation of the week. Okay. The journo opened the book by admitting that she had known Emily Weiss for a very long time. They'd kind of been work 
buddies, I guess, maybe. Mm. And that before the pandemic, she was trying to convince Emily Weiss to write a memoir that she would ghostwrite. And then when the pandemic started, the convo fizzled out and Marissa ended up going behind her back to pitch this book oh, to the publishers dear. about her. I could not hate that more if I tried. And I think she basically admitted in the book that Emily Weiss found out about it when it was announced. So she has a work acquaintance, pitches the idea of doing a memoir together. Emily says no. She or, goes behind Emily's back. I don't even know if Emily said no. Or if it just never it just eventuated. It sort of never eventuated because the pandemic fell. And everyone like lost concentration on everything when the pandemic mm. fell upon us. And then Emily found out this was happening via the press. I think so. If that's true, that is yeah. so Yeah, so that sort bad. of put me offside from the start. It's interesting that she included that yeah. in her own book. It's going to be a very talked about book, I think. So I wanted to talk about it here to see... If anyone is going to read it or will read it, please come and talk to me about it. The thing I really quickly want to recommend properly is a piece in the cut this week called The Pandemic Skip. Did you guys read it? Oh, this was a brilliant piece. It's not particularly long and it speaks to this feeling that has kind of overwhelmed me in the last Mm. six months. And it's this idea that you feel like getting to this age, I mean, I'm 29 now, that I lost these two years of my life between the ages of about 26 to 28. And now that I'm coming out of the pandemic, every woman my age is starting to realise that they're approaching 30 and suddenly life becomes very real and socially a lot of people are talking about their biological clock and it just hit me out of fucking nowhere. Mm. Every social event I go to, people are talking about it, women are talking about it and I felt like I went into the pandemic as a child and left as an adult and so the cuts, Katie Schneider has sort of labelled this the pandemic skip of those two years and it's a really, really beautiful short piece for people who might find themselves particularly in our phase of life, Mish. Well, I think what I love so much about this piece and what I resonated with is that the writer, when the pandemic was happening, was looking at younger women, say women who might be missing their travelling years or missing their university gap years and saying, oh, they're the ones who are missing out the most. And I certainly did that when we were going through the pandemic. I was kind of like, well, I've done a bit of travelling. I'm in this like mid-20s kind of time. I'm not missing out on that much. But now that I'm 29 and I'm looking back, I feel like I'm not ready for the things that I thought I'd be ready for at 29 or 30. And I am kind of realising the stuff I've missed out on in the years that have passed me by. Yeah, I don't think it's it's obvious. Like I think with people younger than us, it was very easy to say, oh my gosh, these are the travel years. But now we're out of the pandemic. They're quickly making up for it. For us, we were like, oh, well, we're in stable homes and we have Mm. partners to have around as company. We're okay. But now we're out of it. I think a lot of women our age are turning around being like, oh, the things we've lost aren't that tangible. Like it's really hard to explain. And to be clear, everyone lost something in the pandemic. And that's what what the piece also says. It's like it's possible that there is no... Good time. (laughs) No good pandemic skip. It's just sort of the years that we had, I feel like we probably didn't realise at the time what we were losing. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I thought this was a brilliant piece and it, it was one of those pieces that we were laughing about that makes you feel like you're not unique at all. I was like, like I don't the have... The feelings and thoughts you have are not unique an at all. original thought. <laughs> I was like, God damn. <laughs> How about you? I want to recommend an episode of The Daily. I know we've talked about Ozempic and this like weight loss era on the show already this year, but The Daily has done a deep dive in an episode called The Ozempic Era of Weight Loss, and I just loved it. It came out earlier this week. 
it looked at a lot of things. It looked at maybe an erosion of the body positivity movement. It looked at the cultural impact of Ozempic. It also looked at two different people's experience on the drug. It spoke to experts about it. I just thought it was such a well-rounded deep dive into something that I'm still fascinated about. Like I am still so intrigued as to what the Ozempic trend or the Ozempic obsession will look like in 10 to 20 years time. I feel like this is a drug that's not going away. And they open this episode by essentially saying, this is one of the first times in history that there's been a pharmaceutical drug released that has then become so part of the vernacular that everyone knows exactly what it is. Like this is the trendiest medicine in the history of medicines. And I just found it fascinating. So if you are still on the Ozempic obsession bandwagon like me, listen to this episode of The Daily. I actually will give that a listen. I saw that in my feed the other day. I wasn't immediately drawn to it, but the way you've summarized it has me drawn. Well, I just I just keep looking around at celebrities and I have never seen such a tangible, visible change in how celebrities that. look. And I think even with the VMAs last week, I'm looking at these celebrities on red carpets and I'm pretty sure everyone's on Ozempic. I think even I'm seeing it a bit with American influencers and TikTokers on my feed now. Yes. (laughs) And when it starts entering that part of your, I guess, social media experience, it does become something that feels like it's everywhere. Yeah. And I I mean, the older I get, the more I realise we are such a yo-yo with trends and body standards and beauty ideals that we really have regressed back to this incredibly thin body as the beauty ideal. And I could not read, listen to or watch more analysis about it. All right. Should we get into the quick and dirty? Because we have so much to cover today. We do. And a shout out to Trish McDonald and Vicky Andrews, because they'll be heartbroken when we talk about this story all over again. This one's for you. (laughs) I was also pretty sad. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Annabelle. For you. And to be honest, for me. (laughs) Our first story, Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness separate, moving forward with gratitude, love and kindness. That is from People magazine. Where shall we begin? I mean, that headline, that shows how much people love mm. Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness, that when they, even when they announce their split, they're able to get a headline that says, moving forward with gratitude, love and <laughs> Their brand is so strong. But yes, after 27 years, Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness have split in a statement exclusively shared with people. They said, we have been blessed to share almost three decades together as husband and wife in a wonderful, loving marriage. Our journey now is shifting and we have decided to separate to pursue our individual growth. They went on, our family has been and always will be our highest priority. We undertake this next chapter with gratitude, love and kindness. We greatly appreciate your understanding in respecting our privacy as our family navigates this transition in all of our lives. I was surprised to read this one, but perhaps I shouldn't be surprised because 2023 is the year of the celebrity divorce and it feels like absolutely nobody is safe. I actually was so shook by this and I did have to text my mother straight away and say, are you okay? And she says, it's not true. (laughs) And I was like, well, it is. The the articles are out. The over 50 women are not okay. I think we can say that across the board. Vicky Andrews was shocked, stunned, appalled, upset. (laughs) (laughs) Angry. Now, these two met in 19... 1995 on the set of an Australian TV series called Corelli. Deb was actually the more established actress at the time. Hugh was actually on the precipice of his career. He was actually just out of drama school. They married in under a year and were really together through those monumental changes in their life. 
mostly the extremity of his fame. Yeah. And the last time we heard from them was on their 27th wedding anniversary in April. So only really five months ago. Hugh Jackman wrote, I love you so much. Together we have created a beautiful family and life. Your laughter, your spirit, generosity, humour, cheekiness, courage and loyalty. A lot of adjectives in this segment is an incredible gift to me. Mum was very intrigued by this post. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I was like, this is why she was trying to tell me it wasn't true because he posted this (laughs) in April. (laughs) I mean, it is always worth looking at the recent posts pre-separation. Could they have still been separated at this point if he was writing this? I don't think Hugh Jackman is in the business of posting things to keep up appearances. I don't think he would care. He's not like a new age celebrity. But I don't think they've split in the last five months. I think they absolutely have split in the last five months. Why? Like properly, I think they've been splitting for the last few years. I don't think you're writing that post. (laughs) That's why I'm confused. (laughs) Hugh Hugh Jackman is like a grown man. Why would he feel the need to write that? In fairness, I know you said Hugh Jackman's not the kind of person to keep up pretenses, but I do have to say, it's not like these two kept their relationship out of the limelight. Mm. We knew a lot about them. Deborah Lee Furness is not that famous. She's famous because they made their relationship famous. Mm. So I think it would be remiss of us to not recognise that. They were a big couple because they decided to be a big couple. That's a good point, Zara McDonald. One thing that really surprises me with this split as well is that it's come after he reached the peak of his career. Like I can imagine two people in the same industry getting together. I mean, her career, as we just said, was bigger than his. I can imagine him becoming a bona fide Hollywood A-lister and them splitting when that's happening, right? But that would have been, what, 12, 15 years ago that Uh, Hugh Jackman hit the big time? More than, probably 20. Yeah. He has been such a massive celebrity for so long. I'm surprised that the split has come now when he's still an A-lister, but it's not like he's at the pinnacle doing the blockbuster movies every year. Yeah, it's not like things are like fundamentally changing right now. I do think the age of their kids is pretty relevant here. They've got a 23-year-old and an 18-year-old. It's Mm. not uncommon for couples who have been together for a really long time to see their kids become adults, feel like they're safe in the world, and then they can go off and do their separate things. I'm still sad. And I know we're not meant to say that because I don't know them. <laughs> I, I am sad. This is the definition of parasocial relationships. It's time for you to redeem yourself as the oracle, I feel. Yes. You've had a shaky year, a couple of oh. months where you haven't been on fire. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, I think obviously this has been the year of the celebrity divorce and the big celebrity breakup. It's only September. Mm-hmm. We are definitely going to have another big headline about a divorce before the end of the year. And I want to know who's it going to be. What celebrity couple is is heading for a breakup? I think it's not this year, but it will probably be in the next 12 months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and it's not going to be a popular one, I'm afraid. Oh, oh. John Krasinski no. and Emily Blunt. In the next 12 months? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm going to go Tom Holland and Zendaya. Okay, well, they're not married. <laughs> <laughs> no, but big breakup. Like they're talking not... about like the Joe and Taylor I, Swift. I appreciate what you're trying to do, which has hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening at all. Okay. Annabelle, have you got one? I'm speechless. Those two picks, not about it. Have you got I one? I would say perhaps <laughs> if I have to pick one, it's Blake Lively and uh, Ryan Reynolds. You know what's interesting? I was 
reading Dumois' sort of posts this morning, people kept asking about Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively. I wonder if it's because of this. We're talking a lot about big celebrity divorces and Dumois' like, I'm not hearing anything about them ever. Mm. So there's no sort of undercurrent in the water there. I don't think any celebrity couple is safe, but I don't <laughs> I mean, think is Blake every, and... any couple safe? No, but like famous particularly this year, I feel like 2023 is coming for a range of couples. I think Blake and Ryan are safe for now. For now. <laughs> Honestly, (laughs) while we're on the topic of celebrity divorce, I know this is a bit of an aside. I just wanted to squeeze it in because it's an update on a story we covered last week. Danny Masterson's wife, Bijou Phillips, who stood by him throughout the entire rape trial that we went into depth on last week, has filed for divorce 12 days after he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. So after writing that glowing letter about him to the judge, Bijou Phillips has filed for divorce. Yeah, not at all what I was expecting there. I thought you probably might have done it earlier if you were going to do it, yeah. but clearly what she wanted to do now. Interesting. Our second story, Russell Brand accused of rape and sexual assault. That is from the BBC. Just a really quick one before we jump into this segment, guys. This obviously will detail some allegations of sexual assault and rape and may be triggering for some listeners. If you or your loved one needs help, call 1-800-RESPECT. Yeah, we're going to take you through this story chronologically and set out the timeline for you. So late last week, there were whispers around on social media. Essentially, a big television company had released a statement saying, we have a program coming out on the weekend that will level allegations at a prominent UK personality and TV figure. And so naturally, a lot of people started throwing out names, guessing who this might be about. And Russell Brand's name started trending on Twitter, Zara. Yeah, exactly. I think when any TV company releases a statement saying we've got something big coming, people jump on it. Before we even got a chance to watch the program, Mm. we were told by Russell Brand himself that he was the subject of this program. He posted a video to his 10 million social media followers on Saturday morning. The program was due to go live on Saturday evening, UK time. Mm. And here's a snippet of how it started because there was a lot going on. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. And as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent. And I'm being transparent about it now as well. And to see that transparency metastasized into something criminal that I absolutely deny makes me question Is there another agenda at play? Right. So that was posted under the caption, this is happening. The message from Russell Brand was there's about to be a coordinated media attack against me. At one point, he even said, there's a serious and concerted agenda to control these kind of spaces and these kind of voices. And by that, I mean my voice along with your voice. I mean, the interesting thing about Russell Brand is that while he was in the mainstream, five, ten years ago, he has since become an alternative right-wing commentator who definitely relies on his social media pages to kind of critique, analyse the news and also promulgate conspiracy theories. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he's become a bit of a conspiracy theorist for sure. So then on Saturday night, the program aired and we're going to walk you through the allegations that the documentary discussed. 
Because Russell Brand now has been accused of rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse by a handful of women. The allegations were aired in a joint investigation by a few British publications. You had the Sunday Times, the Times and Channel 4's dispatches. So you had all these journos working together to tell this story. And apparently they've been working on it for three years, which I found really interesting. The alleged assaults are said to have taken place in the height of Russell Brand's fame between the years 2006 and 2013 and predominantly involved Russell meeting these women in professional settings and then engaging in a romantic relationship often actually initially and then these women say they were assaulted. Four women anonymously told their stories in the documentary. One woman, and I think this has become the biggest headline of them all, says she was 16 years old and still at school when a then 30-something Russell Brand asked her on a date. She says Russell nicknamed her the child and later assaulted her. She says she had to punch him hard in the stomach to get him away from her. One of her quotes to the Sunday Times was, Russell engaged in the behaviours of a groomer looking back, but I didn't even know what that was then or what that looked like. We should say Russell Brand has emphatically denied every allegation levelled at him in this documentary, which obviously includes that quote and that story. Yeah, of course. One detail that really stood out to us as well is that a lot of these women say that they had consensual sex with Russell Brand once and then were later raped or assaulted by him on subsequent occasions. The documentary also showed one woman who they called Nadia. Her medical documentation, she actually went to a rape treatment centre on the day she says she was raped by Russell Brand where she was given antibiotics and emergency contraception. The document, which was partly redacted for privacy, was shown to viewers and did actually include a sentence about the incident being further complicated by, and I quote, the assailant celebrity status. Mm. Even stranger with this whole story is a couple of hours after the documentary aired, Russell Brand actually appeared on stage at a scheduled comedy gig in London, just Mm. as normal. Yeah, to a packed 2,000-person theatre. I know I'm taking us back a little bit, but I found the tone and the quotes in Russell Brand's social media video to be really fascinating. I think... From a publicity perspective, as much as I am not here to vouch for Russell Brand's character, I think it was quite savvy actually for him to get ahead of the story and put out a video straight away. But I really resent so much of what he said in that video. His quote, one of the quotes was, I feel like I'm being attacked. And I just find it fascinating for a man of Russell Brand's stature, power, wealth, to so swiftly position himself as a victim. Like he very much victimized himself in this in this video. And I find it fascinating that we've got a handful of women saying we have been victimized by this one man, this one very powerful, very influential man. And then this man has been so, so effective in saying I'm actually the victim of this big, amorphous, hard to pin down thing that is the mainstream media. Yeah. We've made such like a beast and a villain of the mainstream media, which let's be real, is such a weird, like it's a it's a term that kind of means nothing. Well, especially in this era, because it's like, what is the mainstream media? Is he also the mainstream media if he has a YouTube channel with millions of people? Yeah. It's like when... When these kind of figures like Russell Brand throw out, oh, well, I'm I'm being attacked, I'm being targeted by the mainstream media, it's such an ominous, eerie thing to consider. But when you actually try and pin it down, it's like, so what? Russell Brand really thinks 
journalists are going after him because he's what saying the COVID vaccine was bad. Yeah. How many people are saying that online and have been saying that online? Why would journalists be like, we're threatened by Russell Brand. Let's have a coordinated attack against him. And what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, of course, but I think the point is the people that he's speaking to generally every single day, even prior to Saturday, believe that to be true, believe that there is some great conspiracy with the way that we communicate in the media. And so could ostensibly believe his hypothesis that the reason this is making news now is because people are coming to get him. I mean, what's really interesting when these kinds of stories air is when journos dig up old quotes from other celebrities about Russell Brand. One in particular is a quote from Danny Minogue, who told The Mirror in the mid-noughties, he is completely crazy and a bit of a vile predator. I certainly don't think he has cured his sex addiction, that's for sure. He wouldn't take no for an answer. Mm. I mean, so often in these cases, the facts stare you in the face from quotes that are on the record. Mm. I mean, even ex-wife Katy Perry, who was married to Russell Brand between 2010 and 2012, also told Vogue about a decade ago that parts of the marriage were, and I quote, really hurtful and very controlling. On that, she elaborated by saying, I felt a lot of responsibility for it ending, but then I found out the real truth, which I can't necessarily disclose because I keep it locked in my safe for a rainy day. I would so love to hear what Katy Perry meant by that quote a decade ago. It's such a an interesting story. Russell Brand has made his sexual exploits and his quote-unquote promiscuity such a central part of his brand for so long. It's just fascinating. I'm really interested to see where this goes. You and I were talking at our desks yesterday, Zara, about that Katy Perry quote. And I don't know where she goes to from here, but I can't, I would imagine that we will eventually hear more from Katy Perry when it comes to her ex-husband. I don't think it'll be now, but I think she will eventually acknowledge it. I think it would be hard not to from a PR perspective, but I think she'll probably end up doing another profile with Vogue. I think she might have been, I agree. I think she might have been waiting for this day. I mean, she said, I'm going to keep it locked in my safe for a rainy day. I think the rainy day has potentially come and I don't think we've heard the last of Katy Perry on Russell Brand. Definitely not. Our third story, how Sabrina Bassoon, aka Tube Girl, became TikTok's latest icon. (laughs) That is from the BBC. Before we get into the details, I was late to Tube Girl. But only by a day or two. Well, you were in the office and you're like, have you seen Tube Girl? And I was like, what the fuck is a Tube Girl? (laughs) I I was thinking you were talking like, Boob tubes tubes or something. Well, okay, in case any of our (laughs) listeners have missed it, Tube Girl is having a moment. She is the most talked about social media influencer, not just of this week, but I would say over the last few months. She's gained 300,000 followers and gained 12 million likes at the time of recording. And you might be wondering, well, what does Tube Girl do (laughs) and why has she garnered such a following? Well, she's got... TikTok in a chokehold because she shoots herself dancing to music on the tube in front of all the other passengers. Yeah, in London, right? In London. She's not just dancing, though. I don't know whether the windows are already open in the tube or if she's opening them herself, but she starts kind of like doing a little jig in the side of the tube and then by the end of the video is dancing so hard and like sexily that the wind is blowing her hair back. She's in front of every single passenger on the carriage. She looks like a star. She looks 
She is a star. Yeah. I'm obsessed with Tube Girl. This girl has je ne sais quoi. She does. <laughs> she absolutely does. She did an interview with the BBC about her newfound fame and she said it all started because she has to commute everywhere because she lives quite far away from her friends. And she said, so on the way back home after a night out, I'd put my music on. And when you're bumping your head, people don't come up to you. People leave you alone a bit more. So I was feeling more safe and enjoying my journey a bit better because it's probably true. The most written thing in her comments is how do you have the confidence confidence to do this in front of strangers and she said she originally didn't want to film the videos herself (laughs) she actually said she had a tiktok idea recently and asked another passenger to film it for her (laughs) and they said no And so she was like, you know what? I'm going to do this alone. I want to make this video. I'm obsessed with this woman. I just love, because it's not just the confidence of dancing in front of people. It's also going up to someone and saying, hey, can you please film this for me? Not letting that know throw you off course. And she had this really wonderful quote where the BBC journo said to her, how do you feel about people who think that you're kind of embarrassing or being a bit cringe? And she said, I think that's a very common thing when girls are having fun, when they're seen as enjoying themselves and when they take pride in their value. You know, saying, oh, I'm beautiful. I'm a girl who's confident. A lot of the times people will try to humble you. You can never win. I could not be a bigger fan. I think she's amazing. I could never do this myself. I would die to even like, even slightly bop my head in front of people on the train would be anxiety inducing. I I get embarrassed if I'm listening to a podcast or something and something's funny in my ears and I laugh (laughs) out loud in public. I can I'm just embarrassed on the train full stop. I think I just look at my feet the whole time until it's over. But for her to do this and to build such a following and for it to now be a trend, I've seen so many other TikTokers try and emulate this energy. The girls are having fun and I'm fucking here for it. I am loving seeing people do it themselves. Again, it would take a bit for me, but... I'll never rule it out. <laughs> never say never. I'm inspired. Uh, coming up after the break, Paul Meskell and Daisy Edgar-Jones are not dating. No. Drew Barrymore is facing backlash. And for some reason, we're going to talk about the Roman Empire. <laughs> but first, a word from today's sponsor. Our fourth story, the man who has captured Daisy Edgar Jones's heart. Actress confirms romance with Anya Taylor-Joy's ex-boyfriend Ben Seed as the couple share a kiss during their shopping trip. That is from Daily Mail. I'm definitely sadder about this news story than I am about Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness. Interesting. What an interesting thing. (laughs) (laughs) 27-year marriage Um, versus the hypothesis. I'm not not sadder about this than I am about Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness because I live in a state of delusion. (laughs) And I believe that Paul and Daisy will find a way. They're not going to find a way because they've had ample opportunity and we're still here and they keep dating other people. (laughs) Ships in the night. They keep dating. What? Why can't they just date each other? I think they bitch about us. I think they're like, oh, people keep saying that we're going to get together. They would so be like, can people grow up? And people is us. They wouldn't find our podcast really immature. Yes, well, it is. This is pretty immature. Now, as we mentioned in the headline, Daisy Edgar-Jones does have a new boyfriend. He is a photographer named Ben Seed. They were papped shopping at Gucci in London. He was also in a recent reel that she posted. So (laughs) she kind of posted a – it looked like a summer recap kind 
kind of real with all her friends hanging out. And we were all too focused on the fact that Paul was in the real <laughs> to realise that she posted her new boyfriend like four different times. I actually wonder if she posted this real to kind of stop people speculating about her and Paul Meskel, but it didn't work because all people saw was Paul Meskel. So she had to set up the pap photos in London so people stopped talking. I hear you, but I don't think Daisy would make the decision to put Paul in a reel if the purpose of the reel is to try and put us onto the new boyfriend. She knows. She knows we're suckers for this. They're smart. Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Meskel are smart. They are not posting photos of each other if they don't want us to talk about it. No, but they're friends. They're, you can, I have plenty of friends that I don't post Male all over friends. my social media. I would be annoyed by that because I think if I was them <laughs> and you were genuinely friends, it's like it's not my fault you guys are speculating. It's probably more secretive if I don't post you. Then people would think that we're dating because something has changed because they've always posted about each other since they started working together on normal people. So, no, I don't agree with that. <laughs> Look, I don't know why I'm passionate about anything. <laughs> they're screwed anyway. We're going to be psychos about them yeah. regardless. <laughs> um, yeah, as we mentioned, Ben C, we don't know a heap about him, just that he dated Anya Taylor Joy from the Queen's Gambit. Yeah, a couple of years ago, but she's now married ago. to someone else. Yeah, so that so, feels like yeah. ancient history. Sort of the only fact we had. <laughs> Our fifth story. <laughs> Drew Barrymore cancels talk show premiere after strike blowback. That's from the Sydney Morning Herald. All right. A bit going on with this story. So we need to run you through both the events of the week, but also maybe give you a quick explainer on the strikes themselves because the Hollywood strikes really underpin all of this drama. Zara, where shall we begin? Okay, so what a lot of our listeners would know is that there's a lot of striking going on in Hollywood, but what they may not know is the weeds of it and the fact that there's actually more than one strike happening as we speak. So there's been strikes going on since May. One of those strikes is the WGA writers strike. I'm sure we've heard of that one where over 11,000 writers have stopped working. There's another strike that's also going on that's been going on since about July. That's the SAG-AFTRA strike, which is also kind of colloquially referred to as the actor's strike. That's seen 160,000 people in the entertainment industry stop working as well. Mm. Now, both of these strikes are against the same body. That body is the AMPTP, which basically represents big streamers and television networks, what performers and what writers want right now is better pay and working conditions, which seems to have been eroded with the culture of streaming. Writers were pretty well paid and pretty rewarded mm. back when, you know, shows were syndicated and we watched stuff on television. Mm -hmm. But it's become incredibly complicated with streaming. A lot of big TV networks have been running at a loss with streaming because they've just been trying to acquire audience and that business model has really affected the writers and actors yes. and performers at large. For writers as well, the rise of artificial intelligence is a huge concern for them and that's a big part of the WGA writers strike. I have a very quick are you in need of some intrigue here that maybe you guys know the answer for, but are you in need of some intrigue? Always. Yes. Do you know who the president of SAG-AFTRA is? <laughs> hmm. So this is, the, this, is, <laughs> this is the president of like the actors no, body. No, I don't. Fran Drescher from The Nanny. <gasps> no That's way. why she's everywhere. That's why she's everywhere. I haven't seen her anywhere. Fran Drescher is the one who is getting up and kind of speaking about all of the 
the unrest. She's the one representing the oh actors. Because I was reading an article about it and she was quoted. And I was like, what's the nanny doing? <laughs> <laughs> Where are the kids? <laughs> she's the president, which I found super fascinating. Now, as part of the strike, all members of SAG-AFTRA, again, the actor's body, are prohibited from most of their work. Only it gets a little bit complicated, right? Drew Barrymore, to bring the story back to her, is a member of SAG-AFTRA. She has been acting since she was 11 months old. She's been a member of SAG-AFTRA since she was five. However, she's a talk show host. And the talk shows do not fall underneath the SAG-AFTRA strike. In fact, talk shows in America, along with reality TV, sports programs, morning news shows, soap operas, and game shows are running business as usual because they are under a different agreement to the sag AFTRA agreement. I will say, and I'll get into this in a little bit of detail later, talk shows can run as normal, but because a lot of celebrities front like late night talk shows, people have opted not to do their show because of the optics while the strike is going on. But they can technically still run because they don't fall under the same agreement. I wouldn't say it's technically optics. I would say that it's also because of the writer's strike. And a lot of Mm. these talk shows are very reliant on writers. And if the writers can't work, then the show also, it's not just optics. I I am sure optics plays a role. But I would say a big portion of this is the fact that if writers can't be writing, does the show want to move on without them? Well, late night talk shows as well rely so heavily on jokes and comedic writers. So that's why late night talk shows have been. And also I think for late night talk shows, it's been a big ethical point to be like, we're Mm. not leaving our writers behind. Mm. Like we're standing with our writers because Mm. if they can't work, then nor can we. I mean, for example, you've got Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers and John Oliver. They've launched that podcast, Mm. Strike Force 5. So instead of doing their show, they've done a podcast in order to try and kind of keep paying wages, raise some money and keep things going. And a lot of celebrities Celebrities as well are choosing who have TV shows are choosing to pay their staff out of their own pocket to try and keep families afloat during this time. It's super messy. But that brings us to Drew Barrymore, who last week told the world that the fourth season of her talk show was going to be recommencing this week. Now, she wrote in her Instagram caption announcing this news that it would be in compliance with not discussing or promoting film and television that is struck of any kind. A spokesperson for Drew also told Entertainment Weekly last Last week, the Drew Barrymore show will not be performing any writing work covered by the WGA strike. Now, for the record, the Drew Barrymore show apparently has three unionised writers on its staff. So Drew was planning on bringing back the show without these three writers involved. Yes, exactly right. So I don't know what you have then, what producers sort of acting as writers or I I don't know how it works, but... As we know, this decision was not received well at all by the WGA, who tweeted this shortly after. The Drew Barrymore Show is a WGA-covered struck show that is planning to return without its writers. The Guild has, and will continue to, picket struck shows that are in production during the strike. Any writing on the Drew Barrymore Show is in violation of WGA strike rules. Yeah, this was seen by the WGA as like a big betrayal from Drew Barrymore because when a big celebrity essentially says, well, I'm going to keep the show rolling, keep it going. Well, it undermines what they're trying to do. Well, the whole point of the strike is to put pressure on the Motion Picture Alliance to say, we're not working for you until you meet our demands. If some people start working, it 
discredits or it it really damages. It damages the movement's ability to enact change. The first day back of Drew Barrymore's show, so the filming of the first episode of season four, was nothing short of a disaster, I would say. Plenty of journalists and photographers went along and got photos of a bunch of picketers assembling at the front of the studio protesting. Two members of the audience also spoke to the media and said they were walked out of the studio because they were wearing WGA supportive pins on their clothing. Mm. A spokesperson for Drew said she didn't know that they got evicted from this TV set and that she was really upset and didn't support that decision from her staff. One element I think is fascinating here and probably explains the fury towards Drew Barrymore this week is that she's been accused of not sticking to her word. Yes. Back in May, Drew emphatically supported the writer's strike. She actually said this. I have listened to the writers and in order to truly respect them, I will pivot from hosting the MTV Movie and TV Awards live in solidarity with the strike. So she literally gave up a hosting gig because of it. She said, until a solution is reached, I am choosing to wait. I'll be watching from home and hope you will join me. I think the other part of this as well is some people might be listening to this and thinking, okay, but what if her and her team needed to get back to work? What if they've been off for all this time since April and they really needed to like finally get back to it? They actually haven't been off at all. They've been between seasons, which Mm. has been a natural lull and always planned lull in production. Mm. So a lot of people online are arguing Drew Barrymore and her show hasn't actually been affected by the strike at all. This is when they start to be affected by the strike when the planned return for season four is delayed, which I think is really important to know. Season three happened to finish just before Before the strikes began. Yeah. So you're right. I think the issue is now, obviously, the complexity is there would be a bunch of people working on this show who aren't writers who now also won't get work. It's super Which is the messy. case on every other show at the moment anyway. Like this is widespread and it's messy mm. and ugly, but you could argue the people to look at are, you know, the big streamers and the people with the money and working out how do they actually have an industry that can sustain itself moving forward mm. where writers feel like they're looked after, where actors feel like they're looked after and the business still makes money because right now it feels like none of these things are happening. Yeah. People have definitely observed that Drew's handling of this from a PR perspective has been messy. So after those quotes from May were getting dug up and after people had picketed her first recording, she published a very tearful apology video over the weekend. This was then promptly deleted. I think it was only up for about half an hour because the reception was so, so bad. In the video, she did point to the complexities of the situation. She said that she's always had good intentions. She didn't mean to hurt anyone. But I think she got the temperature of the room so wrong in that she cried in this video. Yeah. I think the decision to put a video out where she is crying, saying essentially again, Maybe telling the audience that she feels like a victim in the situation is just not what people want right now. People wanted an apology, but not one that ended in tears. I'm not surprised this got deleted. It got deleted and then replaced with a very PR team-led written statement, which essentially said the show's now not coming back and will not come back until the strikes are over. It has just been a dog's breakfast of a PR strategy. It's so interesting. I read a lot of commentary after the Miller and Ashton video apology last week and a lot of PR experts are saying there is never a world where 
the front facing camera needs to be on when you're trying to get yourself out of a PR disaster. Mm. Just put up the statement that is carefully worded where you are trying to read the room because it never works. And I think the proof is in the pudding here. So many bad, I mean, so many divorces, but also so many bad celebrity apologies this year. Colleen Ballinger, Ashton and Miller, Drew Barrymore. Can we go back to the notes up apology? I I know we grilled it for ages, but let's bring it back. I've always been a fan. (laughs) Our sixth story. How often do men think about the Roman Empire? A lot, according to a new TikTok trend. That is from (laughs) Paul. In other TikTok news, it turns out all men do is think about the Roman Empire. <laughs> Apparently, all they think about is the Roman Empire. Yes, according to Insider, this trend on TikTok can be traced back to a Roman reenactor who posted a video back in August when he said women do not comprehend and do not realize how often men think about the Roman Empire. This guy suggested that women ask their husband, boyfriend, father or brother because, and I quote, they will be surprised by their answers. So women were like, there's no way this is real. And then they started doing it. They started going to their husbands, boyfriends, (laughs) fathers or brothers. And people honestly think about the Roman Empire. Well, a lot of men, like a lot of the TikTok videos, which have millions of likes, have come up on my For You page. And a lot of men are saying fortnightly. Fortnightly, they think about it's the just Roman Empire. Too much. I asked Mitch, though, I like tried to get my own viral TikTok video yeah. and it backfired on me. I was recording him. I'm like, how often? And he was like, maybe not since year 10. Yeah, Ollie was like, I don't think about it and I don't think that people do. And I was like, oh my God, is my boyfriend an idiot? Like, I was like, is this a sign? Like, He's a is, non-intellectual. Oh, yeah, like, do the intellectual men think of the Roman Empire? I messaged my brothers one didn't reply one said I don't think about it daily but I do think about it a bit I don't think about it daily because I said do you think about the Roman Empire daily and he said not daily but I do think about it a bit what in what like when what I want to know is when is it coming up in their brain it's coming up in their brain when women are thinking about all the things that are to do with the mental world. <laughs> That's the argument. It's like, oh, my God, men have so much more space in their brains. To think about the Roman Empire. Is it that they're walking past construction sites and thinking, hmm, building. Rome wasn't built in a day. I don't Roman know. Empire. Because the thing is, I feel like a bit of a deal, but I don't really know what the Roman Empire <laughs> is. much. <laughs> so I don't know the contents of what they're what thinking is the about. Roman, is it when they built Rome or I, like the, the power of Rome? I, I understand that. The, <laughs> the power of Rome. Is it the Catholic Church? I think I they, they invented quite a lot of things. <laughs> When they were powerful, yeah, yeah, I, years and years ago, and they and they, kind of, I guess, perhaps created a form of a society. <laughs> what, did it, I think the Romans invented medicine or something. But so even this shit. But when people are answering it, and they're like, "Yeah, well, obviously," like I guess technically we all think about it every day. I'm like, and what would that mean? <laughs> I feel like an idiot. One thing I'm loving is women getting on TikTok and giving their version of the Roman yeah. Empire. Like, what's the thing what's your that comes Empire? up for you that your brain revisits? It's every couple of weeks or every week. I think it's um the James Corden quotes <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. about him being on a plane. No, no, not the plane ones. About the guy that was like the other person in the industry was like, 
James Corden would be fucked. If, do you remember <laughs> that? Oh, yeah, yeah, if yeah. the standard is being nice, nice James, James Corden, Corden was fucked. <laughs> to that point is my Revenant Empire. Annabelle? Oh, it's got to be pop culture moment. It's got to be. <laughs> do you guys remember that? <laughs> Jesse Nelson from Little Mix going, Blegged. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, Zara, you got to look it up. i got to look it up. <laughs> I think mine is either John Travolta saying, Adele does yeah. <laughs> Or it's just Taylor Swift. I think about Taylor Swift and what's going on with Taylor mm. Swift every day of my life. So I said that in the office. I said, it's actually probably, I don't think at least in the last year that there's been a day where she hasn't <laughs> popped up in my thoughts. I think it's been five years. Someone <laughs> in the office said, Really? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that's too absurd. Think about how often she's in the media. Think mm. about how I'm not choosing some days. Also, I'm listening to her music every single day. It's coming up on my Spotify every time I click onto Spotify. It's got to be Taylor Swift. And the other thing that's popping up for me more and more is astrology. Oh. <laughs> just, just the concept of astrology is just popping into my head no, at all times. That's not my Roman Empire. <laughs> Our seventh story. <laughs> AFL great Brian Taylor revealed how the infamous Fitzroy garage party happened at his house. That's from Pedestrian. <laughs> Annabelle, who's Brian Taylor? I, <laughs> you know what? I did see this headline and his face looked familiar. Yes. Because one time I watched the footy. Yes. <laughs> and after the game he was doing that thing in the running Brian Brian, and he was going hey you want to speak and no one seemed to want to talk oh that to happens everywhere and I was like the players friends, hate Roman why Brian. aren't they talking to him I feel really bad no no don't feel don't bad, feel bad. Oh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I mean look I'm not sure Brian Taylor is going to be the audience's favorite person I don't know how many will know who he is <laughs> raise your hand right now if you're listening and know who Brian Taylor is I think we're going to poll this in your say Friday I think Melbourne people will know who he is. I'm very intrigued about internationally and rest of the country. Melbourne, WASA, or sorry, Vic, SA, WA people will know who he is because they're big AFL states. I'm not sure how we're going to go in like Queensland, Sydney vibes. All that said, there's a reason he's popped up on Shameless. <laughs> now, if our listeners were listening to the show earlier this year, they will probably remember the Fitzroy Garage Party. It was the source of all our conversations <laughs> over the summer. It was where those Melbourne boys went viral after posting a somewhat cringe but pretty inoffensive video partying in a Fitzroy garage. My favourite thing about this story is it came out late December, probably three weeks past before we got to talk about it on Shameless. And by that point, there was like serious socio-ecological <laughs> conversations happening about, about gentrification. <laughs> yeah. So we had to come on and be like, so here's the analysis. <laughs> we can't just laugh about this now. We actually have to also talk and define gentrification. <laughs> anyway, so we now know who owns the house, the Fitzroy Garage Party house, and he's famous, and his name, of course, is Brian Taylor. 61-year-old retired AFL player, I mean, long Retired AFL player Brian Taylor. Now, one of my favourite Brian Taylor moments was earlier this year when he was live on radio doing a footy call, like mid-commentating job. And someone in the studio mentions their cat and he like stops calling the AFL game in front of him and reveals that he actually can't remember the name, doesn't know the name of his cat of 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he ends up calling his wife on air to be like, what's the name of that cat? And she's like, the cat we've had for a decade. He's like, yeah, Tinkerbell. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I forget my cat's name too if it was called Tinkerbell. (laughs) Is that too harsh? Shout out to anyone with Tinkerbell. It's a pet. I'm actually just kidding. Um, that was that. Was, <laughs> that was a big, joke. big respect to the Tinkerbells out there listening. <laughs> now, 
In an interview with the Dylan Friends podcast, Brian Taylor explained that this party happened at his house where his boys, I think his sons, invited like 15 or so mates over for a gathering. Here's what he said on Dill Buckley's show. I didn't know anything about it, but the boys had secretly had a bit of a gathering at my place in Fitzroy. And they all gathered and, you know, it was a sunny afternoon and we're right on the street there. They had the roller door up and all of a sudden, you know, there's a guy sitting out the front on having his hair cut and another guy over there, the beer and another guy playing a bit of cricket in the street. He's banging the, yeah, the top of the you know, <laughs> A couple of guys dancing together. It just looked a bit weird, the whole thing. But <laughs> Brian went on. Every day there are people lined up, many people out the front taking photos going, this is it. This is the sesh. <laughs> this is the sesh. He also said that school groups come through to pay their respects. I don't know if I believe that part, but I do believe it's become a tourist attraction. How did this end up being Brian Taylor's home? How did that end up being the case? It was not the pivot in the story I was expecting <laughs> at all. And guys, that's all we've got for you today. That's all we've got for you. Thank you for listening. Guys, to support the show, you can click follow on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on socials. We're at Shameless Podcast on Insta, at Shameless underscore podcast on TikTok. Big thank you to Annabelle Loy next to me for audio editing this show. Hello. Anything, <laughs> anything I mean, goodbye. 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 Sorry. You got anything to add? Nothing to add. <laughs> Just love you all. You guys did a great job. I don't say it enough on here. <laughs> all right. Time to go. Bye, guys. Or hello. <laughs> Uh, hello to everyone who is still listening. It's a, another after-dinner mint. It's an after-dinner <laughs> mint, the first in over a year, I would say. I would say we haven't given you an after-dinner mint in yonks. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yummy, yummy, everyone oh. here. Um, so just so truthfully, we record Pull these. yourself together, Michelle. Well, the thing is, we record these episodes at like 8 o'clock in the morning, but it's about 4 o'clock on a Wednesday right now. It's too late. There's too many hours that's gone. Between this and the recording, Michelle forced me into the studio to do this. We are back on mic for a very important emergency announcement, and that is Taylor Swift and Sophie Turner have been papped arm in arm going to dinner. Annabelle Lee, you're nodding along, worthy of a get back in the studio moment. <laughs> Truthfully, not. <laughs> I said, put it on Instagram, make the announcement that way. I'm not getting back in the studio today. <laughs> no. But look, I'm back in the studio. This is big. This is huge. I am obsessed with the fact that probably you think Taylor's team reached out to Sophie. I think Taylor saw it all and I think she called Sophie and thought, we can do something here and I can help you out. Let's do something amazing. I think she saw that meme that went completely viral that said, imagine being Sophie Turner and being able to listen to songs about your ex written by Taylor Swift. I also think Taylor Swift would be quite passionate about other people crafting a narrative about you, particularly men. Mm. And I reckon she'd be watching the narrative play out, which is what we seem to think that Joe Jonas's team is kind of getting all the airtime and Sophie staying quiet and thinking, I have some power here and I can help out. Absolutely. So they have been papped linking arms as they arrived at an Italian restaurant in New York City. This was only like, I think this was a couple of hours ago. So this has just happened. Taylor was wearing a long denim jacket. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> That's where we go. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. <laughs> Shameless Media. 
This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.